Hello, I'm Michael Climes, and I'm the acting editor of Money Marketing. And I'd like to welcome you to our newest episode of the Consumer Duty and Protection podcast series, which we're doing with our sister publication, Mortgage Strategy, in association with Raw London. Hello, it's Amanda Newman-Smith here, feature writer, and today I'm joined by Royal London and a financial advisor. So if you could both introduce yourselves, please, that would be great. Good morning. I'm uh, Shelley Reid and I'm Senior Intermediary Development and Technical Manager here at Royal London. Um, And I have the great job of talking to advisors all day, every day uh, and helping them to have uh, real compelling protection conversations. I'm Robin Allen. I have a company called Robin Allen Solutions and I'm a protection only advisor who talks about death all day and has a great time doing it. (laughs) Great, thank you for that. So yeah, today we're going to talk about the consumer duty again. Um, Today I I think we probably need to look at the outcome side of things. So that's all really where I want to kind of start really. Um, So Robin, um, as as an advisor, what would you consider a good outcome for consumers, you know, when when deciding on protection policies and making those decisions? For me, it's multi-layered. A good outcome is they have something that they see the value in, so they're willing to see that direct debit going out every month and they understand it, that they fully understand the products that they have, but they also fully understand the products that they may not have taken and the risks that that leaves them with potentially in those events so that they have a big picture of if this happens, I've got this to support, but if this happens, I said I was willing to deal with those particular consequences. So if they walk away fully understanding that, I'm happy. Shelley, do you want to add anything? Um, I think, yeah, I agree entirely with what uh, what, what Robin's saying. Uh, I think an, a good a good outcome really is a peace of mind, being able to sleep at night. And whilst budget might not allow Rolls-Royce cover from day one, having some elements of cover in place, um, I think, is uh, is really looking to, uh, to to create a good outcome for the clients and knowing that it's flexible and and uh, and it can ch- it can change but you know as robin clearly does so superbly well making sure that clients are aware of the risks because i think a, a, a lot of the general public who aren't involved in this industry don't really stop because it's not a very pleasant thought is it to talk about what happens if one of us die or one of us gets diagnosed with cancer or has a heart attack or indeed has a, an injury and, and he's off work for a while and uh, most people don't give much thought to that because as i say it's not really it's not really a, a great thing to spend your time thinking about or talking about is it so um i think an outcome is having some protection in place that would mean that to an extent that they're happy with the clients happy with they can maintain their lifestyle they can keep their house and uh, look after their family 
Okay, you mentioned costs there. Robin, can I ask you something about, um, you know, do you prioritise those risks? Because, you know, like we've got we've all got budgets, you know, it can't sort of stretch across every little thing. And in an ideal world, I guess we'd have, you know, every single bit of cover in place, you know, the, the maximum. But reality is that, you know, your money can only go so far. So how do you ensure that, that is a good outcome for someone on a budget that may be, you know, not a limitless budget? See, I... I agree with Shelley. You need something rather than nothing because something gets us somewhere. Um, for me, it's all about positioning with the person I'm talking to. It's me spending the first probably 40 odd minutes of an hour just talking about them, just finding out about them. Because when you then get to the point of having the actual conversation about, right, these are the insurances available, let's talk about them for you. I've then got an understanding of, right, it's really important to them to pay their mortgage off early. So that's already coming down with OPEM. So I already understand what their net disposable income is. So I've got an idea of what realm we're probably going to be in in terms of budget. But when I'm talking about the insurances, I'm not putting any barriers in the way. I'm going, right, let's talk about if money was no object, what would be your ideal for each of these particular things? It's then my job to have understood my client enough to go through. And when I'm looking at it, if I can't do perfect, to understand their priorities and cut it. But I show my clients, I take them on the journey. So I go, right, I looked at this. This is what it was going to cost. And this was going to take up all of your budget. From what you told me, these things were still a priority. So I've done, I've tweaked this, I've added this, done this, and this is what I've ended up with. Am I on the right track? And because I've understood them, they've gone, yeah, absolutely. Right. Ah, I see. No, that, 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 that just puts, yeah, puts it all in perspective. So, you now in terms of value for money, because well, that's one of the considerations of the consumer duty, isn't it? Value for money. I mean, how, as an advisor, how do you sort of approach that no value for money? Because it isn't just price, is it? it isn't just about premium and how much you pay. So how do you look at that as an advisor? It's so, I'll be honest, it's a big responsibility because you're looking at these list of prices. You're going, okay, you've got cheap. Am I trying to shoehorn something else into this solution? Have we had a massive conversation around quality? What added benefits do I think would be beneficial? But then you've also got to throw into mix. Have we got an underwriting issue? Have we got an existing medical condition that's also going to be thrown into that? So what is the cheapest to start with once you've included a loading might actually be the most expensive because that insurer has a particular line on that particular condition. So it's a constant game of chess, if I'm honest, but we, we have resources and we have tools. Um, you have things, you've got CI expert, you've got protection guru, you've got all of these resources around so that you can make the best choice for your client, but at times, sometimes it's so close. It's a eeny, meeny, miny. That one will mean they're with two insurers instead of three. Because you also yeah. can't be scared about using multiple insurers because if it gets in the best overall solution, 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think the only thing I, I'd add to that, Robin, you're absolutely right. It's not all about all about price. Price might be um, a starting point, but if you know your client well enough and you know about their lifestyle and what's important to them, um, then there are other things to take into account. So there's all of the added value uh, support services that are available that might be critical right now in someone's. Uh, life you know because a lot of these support services can be used you know from the day the policy starts not just at point of claim um and it's also things i'm trying to think of an example now maybe something like you know fracture cover that might come with a particular policy for someone who skis a lot or rides a horse then that might be you know particularly relevant for them and it might give the best value um in their in their for their policy can i ask about like non-working spouses as well because i was reading something i can't remember where sorry about that but um yeah, i was reading something which, which was talking about you know if there's a couple and one of them works and one of them doesn't if something happens to the one that doesn't work probably a bit like your example from the last episode robin where there was a couple and you know the, the partner died but you know if someone doesn't work that's gonna like you know make a huge difference to someone's life even if you know they've got a job and they've got a sort of you know if they've got children they've got to cover the child care they've got to do everything you know where the, the person that stayed at home sort of did all that to enable that person to go out to work I mean will an advisor have to look at that sort of thing in the future? all the time I if I had a pound for every time they've gone oh we need to insure them for more because they're the working one and I'm like let's have an actual chat because they don't realize the impact you have to really explain the you are living your lives as a pair. You are a team. If you suddenly lose your teammate, you lose 50% of the support. Now, yes, this person may be working and it's having the I'll be honest, it's having the balls to say to them, right, your non-working partner has died. What are you going to do? Are you going to go back to work the next day so you can pay the bills? Are you going to want to stay home with the kids? Are you going to want to do the school run? Are you going to want to be able to turn up for sports day or theatre or awards days what are you going to do there are some people out there who want to get back to work that would be their safe space they would have family support fine but there are others who'd go actually no I'd want to be at home and it's being able to be really forthright with them and go right tell me what would life look like yeah, I, I agree entirely. The only thing I, I would add to that, it's, again, having these really difficult conversations. For any parents out there that are listening, it's not a great conversation to talk about, you know, what would happen. It's it's an even worse conversation to talk about things such as guardianship and, you know, what would happen to the children if, sadly, something happened to both of them. Uh but I think, again, going back to our core subject today of consumer duty, I think that the FCA are, again, in putting the advisors in the shoes of the client, what would they you know, want to happen if it happened to their family and ensuring that whatever wants to happen, as Robin said, some, some uh, widowed parents would want to go back to work and be able to have the funds to, you know, to, to have some childcare for their children. Others would want to totally give up their job and be and be at home so I think once you've had that decision then 
as we all know, there are products available out there that will make that that happen. So things like, you know, as an example, family income benefit is one of my favorite insurance products, but but it's discussed very little, to be honest. But for families, you know, it's a great cost effective way of arranging some cover and it could be crucial in providing uh, an income, even for someone, as you said, Amanda, that that isn't actually um, working as in, uh, you know, an, an income coming in on an employed status. Yeah. Yeah. It's also about being creative, isn't it? Because I've had parents before where they both have very different approaches to money. One was a spender and one was a saver. So we ended up doing family income benefit on the parent that was the saver. So the spender only ever received a monthly stipend if something happened. Whereas because they were the saver, they were, I'd rather have a lump sum because I would go and do the right things with it and I would make it grow. So we actually did two different types of policies on a partnership because they had different approaches to money. Yeah. Yeah, understood. Yeah, that is so important, though, isn't it? Because how else would it work? Uh, yeah, can we talk about a little bit wider than suitability of products now? Um, what do you think about, you know, the advisor's responsibility to talk about trusts and stuff like that? Because, Shelley, you mentioned that earlier. I mean, is the consumer duty going to make that more of a priority, do you think, for advisors? Um, Shelley, can I ask you first? Yeah, I, I think it's all about, Amanda, coming back to the best outcome for the, the customer. And, you know, for in many occurrences, then maybe not now, but at point of claim, then it would be really imperative that, that's, uh, that that plan is written in trust and outside of estate. So I think all sorts of things are, are going to be um, engaged encouraged uh, to be discussed by the advisor that maybe you know they haven't they haven't before um and it's not just about doing the right thing for the consumer but i think also being able to really document that and show that you have had uh, as the advisor you have had those real robust uh, conversations robin do you have any thoughts on that Jill? I, have, I have many thoughts on trusts mm -hmm. um Obviously, absolutely, 100% need to be done. The providers that are giving the online provision to put the trust through at point of application, fantastic, because let's not lie, trust forms, they're not user-friendly. And advisors like me, I'm talking protection all day. So I get used to these forms. I understand the terminology. I understand the tiny little box that's slightly hidden on one form that you need to make sure you point an arrow at. Um, but if somebody isn't as familiar with these documents, they can seem incredibly overwhelming. So then they have to take this document and get it explained to their client. And when you're used to being an expert in something and then you're kind of going, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing, that throws up a barrier. So there's also an argument for trying to make these things more user-friendly for the advisors. It's the absolute right thing to do by the client, but we need to try and remove some of the barriers that are preventing the advisors from doing it yeah. so that there is more of an uptake. Yeah, because they, they can be quite complicated, can't they? I've, I've looked at them myself and had someone explain it to me. And bearing in mind, I'd had like a bit of industry knowledge and I like, with, with the journalism. Imagine trying to sort of you know, understand that when you haven't. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I think it would be great if all of us had provide, providers had one standard set of trust forms. But in truth, I think that's unlikely to happen. So again, as providers, I think we have responsibility to make it as easy as possible, uh, you know, for you ladies and gents out there giving advice. So things, I can only speak from the Royal London side of things, but uh, things to help explain uh, trust to clients, I think, are, are crucial. Um and uh, tools to make sure that very first time you get the correct trust form for those individual um, circumstances. So, so again, I think that will be an ongoing responsibility from providers uh, to help have uh, conversations around such things as trusts. That is the dream, though, Shelley, to have everybody have the same. And also call them the same thing. Don't even get me started on that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I I know it's not that easy, and I think trusts are surrounded with very archaic language, aren't they? But um, you know, and settlers, donors, they can mean the same thing. But um, but yeah, I, I think um, I think we're hoping a bit against hope there, Robin, that that it will all become very uniform. But let's try as providers to make it as an easy journey as possible for for you, ladies and gents, as advisors. you both about um you know sort of documenting all this now you know we, we've talked about various things that advisors will need to do and start looking at if they're not doing it already but you know Robin do you anticipate you know this being difficult to kind of show evidence that you're actually doing this stuff I mean you've been doing it day in day out for I don't know how long but you know will that be a change for you um no, in all honesty, but I came, my background was banking. So I was a financial consultant in a high street bank doing protection um, through there. So when I worked there, we had the hierarchy of needs. So you must fully address the mortgage life cover need, then fully address the mortgage critical illness, then fully address any additional. So we had to deal with that. So I'm from the school of if you don't address a need, you need to fully explain why you have not addressed the need and that the client understands the consequences and the potential financial impacts of that. So when I am putting my notes on, I do that already and I fully explain the conversations I've had and how we've reached a value and how we've determined a term. So for me, I already do really robust notes but I also understand those that have never worked in the hierarchy, have never had to do that, will find this a bit different, potentially. That was a nice way to put that, wasn't it? Um, but again, I think, yeah, I think there's simple processes, there's simple guidelines, there might be simple ways of showing examples of text um, that they can then input and change and make it easier for them to tackle it because once you've got the templates and you start understanding the language it's simple from there yeah i think the only other thing that uh, that i would add is that we don't really know how 
the consumer duty is going to be monitored uh, as yet. I'm sure we'll hear, hear some more news over the next few months. So we don't quite know how it's mo- going to be monitored. But knowing the FCA, maybe we can look at how they've worked in areas such as, you know, DB, transfer market, etc., and look how they've monitored that. And I think when we look back at some of the outcomes of that, 70 to 80% were picked up as not being wrong at all. The advice wasn't wrong, but maybe uh, it was unclear because the documentation wasn't robust enough. So I think it's not just about doing the right thing for the consumers, but really being able to document it in almost, you know, right minutiae detail, really. So if the FCA turn up tomorrow, they know what's being done. And if your notes and documents aren't clear, then I'm sorry to say, but going forward, they've got to be. I think firms need to, you know, really uh, monitor and review what they're, they're doing and record those outcomes. And if there are some poor outcomes, you know, if something happened, then you know, show and doc- document why it happened and show how future advice is going to try and avoid that having again. And as you said, Robin, having, you know, processes in place that can really adapt and change as, you know, products and services and, you know, and policies and practices uh, evolve. Both of you, I just want to ask one more point now about signposting. We touched on it earlier, so I'm not anticipating a really lengthy conversation about this. But um, show you know what are the options for advice firms? You know they can either what, do it themselves or you know go to a protection you know protection yeah. specialist. Sorry, so yeah. Um, over to you because I'm losing the ability to speak. <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, yeah, uh, for me, signposting is one of the most critical things that I think is going to come out of the FCA consumer duty. So those advisors who, for whatever reason, don't have that protection conversation or, or only have a very fleeting mortgage protection conversation, then that's just not going to be an option any longer. So signposting has become a bit of a buzzword over the last few months regarding this. So I think for advisors who, as I say, for whatever reason, it might be time, it might be knowledge and expertise, for whatever reason, they're not going to have that conversation. Uh, they need to make sure their clients have that all that information and an in-depth conversation to make an informed uh, informed choice. So it could be if you're a multi-RI firm, then you have a protection expert. I see more and more companies having someone uh, who only talks about protection. And as we said earlier, they'll have all of that knowledge and expertise built up. But if you are a smaller firm or a one-man band, um, then you need to make what might be seen as quite a brave move to refer your client to someone outside of that firm. Now, if you belong to a network, that might be a little easier because there will be firms who are out and out protection specialists that I'm sure your network have set up some sort of um, signposting route. But if not, then uh, I think as advisors, you'd need to look, you know, locally uh, amongst your peers uh, for someone that will, you know, do that really critical role of having that protection conversation. Thank you, Shelley, for that. And Robin, what are your thoughts on signposts? 
they need to do it. They don't do it. It's naughty and bad that they don't. Um, I think if you don't have the conversation or you don't have a robust conversation, you are doing your clients a disservice. I will say that all the time. But would they need to not be as protective of their clients? Go and find a protection-only advisor that you vibe with, has the same ethos as you, so that you can learn to trust them to hand your clients over to them. And especially if you're a mortgage and protection advisor who just doesn't want to have the protection, you've not got time, hand them to a protection-only advisor. They can't poach your business. There's no nothing to stand on. They're not going to tread on any toes. We just want to make sure that that client has had the conversation and is protected. It's really simple. But for whatever reason, everybody gets very territorial. Um, and we kind of need to break those walls down, I think. And there is an upside uh, to signposting too. Uh, I mean, as Robin said, if you're signposting your clients for their protection discussions to someone like yourself, Robin, who just talks about protection, you may well have instances where some of your clients need advice about a mortgage or about some investments or their, you know, their retirement strategy. So, you know, there is a chance for it to become, you know, a really good lucrative uh, reciprocal arrangement and what protection advisors are great at is building trust so if you start talking to them and seeing if they're a right fit for you as somewhere to refer your clients you will get to know them fairly quickly because those of us that have it we do this all the time we will be very honest and open of yep this is how we deal with our clients this is the way we do it does this suit yours your way as well Great. Thank you both for your time. We are now done for today. So um, bye-bye for now. Thank you. Thank you. In the next episode, we're going to discuss the consumer duty in relation to the cost of living crisis and look at how advisors can make sure they meet the expected requirements of the new duty when their clients are under increasing financial pressure. And if you want to read Royal London's research report, Counting Down to the Consumer Duty, or get tools and resources to support your protection conversations, visit advisor.royallondon.com slash building resilience.